Clover gives you the power to run a smarter, faster restaurant. See everything in real time with the kitchen display system. Streamline takeout and delivery with online ordering. With the right tech, quick service is getting even quicker. Clover, accept payments, run your business, and sell more. For a limited time only, visit Clover.com to get a $450 statement credit on qualified hardware purchases. That's www.clover.com. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night. And building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Face it, shaker bottles suck. Your protein shake always comes out clumpy and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a BlendJet 2 portable blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes that come out smooth, creamy, and delicious in just 20 seconds. So go to BlendJet.com and use promo code DCASTPOD at checkout to get 12% off your order. That's promo code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order at checkout. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language, but just didn't have the time or money? I may have a solution for you. Her name is Jessica, and she gives free Chinese lessons daily at 11 p.m. Beijing time and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Chinese is fun and easy if you have the right teacher. Let Jessica be that teacher and introduce yourself to the fastest growing language in the international job market today at tinyurl.com backslash tcjessica and tell her Ian sent you. Hello and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, author, and journalist Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our 12th and final look at the West Memphis 3. Before we get into it this week, as always, we've got the normal show notes. 
If you'd like to help support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do that. First and foremost, you can go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe to the show, and leave a five-star review. They really do help get the show to more people and help the show grow. Another way you can help the show grow is by going to buymeacoffee.com backslash the deathcast and make a one-time donation. And lastly, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash decast Patreon and become a Patreon member for as little as $2 a month. You can join our two current patrons, Channel and Anthony. Both you guys, thank you so much for supporting the show. If you would like to follow the show on social media, just search for DeathCast, DeathCast Official, or DeathCast Pod. You can find me on most social media platforms under one of those names. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee, but no cigarettes because I'm on the road. Let's go in the crypt. When we left off last time, we were discussing the trial and how both Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin had both been convicted with Eccles being sentenced to death while Baldwin got multiple life sentences. Now, if this was any other case, the story would be over and done with at that point beyond appeals. But as everyone who is even tangentially aware of this case knows that that was not the case with the West Memphis Three. The HBO film Paradise Lost the Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills debuted on June 10th, 1996 on HBO. The film was directed by Bruce Sinofsky and Joe Berlinger. You'll notice that I said film and not documentary, and the reason why I state this is because a documentary does not take sides in a particular issue, or at least it's not supposed to. It's specifically there to document what takes place and leave it up to the individual watching the film to decide. Now, Berlinger and Sinofsky had done a actual documentary prior to this called Brothers Keeper, which told the story of four brothers, I believe they were in upstate New York. One of the brothers was charged with murdering the other. This was an actual documentary. They did not pick sides on the this particular case, and they documented what happened, which was basically the brother ends up being found not guilty. And later on, they, in another subsequent piece attached to the director's cut of this film, the two filmmakers discussed the fact that they believe that the brother did in fact commit this crime and that it was more likely than not a crime of passion. But they didn't fudge things in the movie in order to show this. They simply showed what happened and all of the proceedings, the fallout, the community effect, etc. Paradise Lost, however, was much different as both Berlinger and Stanofsky stated pretty much out of the gate that as they were filming the going-ons in West Memphis, 
they got the strong sense that these three young men were being railroaded, and they felt that it was their duty to present this in the film, which is all good and well, provided you're going to present the entire story. That's not what they did here. Instead, they cherry-picked what they wanted to show, leaving out good amount of the circumstantial evidence and really doing their best to paint Damien and Co. in the most favorable light possible while taking great pains to present law enforcement in West Memphis as you know, Bible-thumping good old boys who were out on a witch hunt. Now, this film had an immediate impact in that hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals who only knew the case as presented by the two filmmakers got on the bandwagon in support of the West Memphis Three. That's a problem as these individuals, many of whom are still within the West Memphis Three supporters community, refuse to have their opinions swayed by the actual evidence and statements made during this case, even when presented with it. And it's still this way today. If you go on to any forum online, whether it's on Facebook or pages dedicated to the West Memphis Three, these individuals are fairly one-dimensional. You cannot discuss any aspect of the case with these individuals without them coming back at you with baseless accusations and stories, such as the oft-repeated that Jesse Miss Kelly was bullied and interrogated for 12 hours, which, if you listen to the confession episode, you know the timeline of that. There was no 12 hours involved, as well as the fact that the police were out to get Damien, which was not the case numerous other avenues too they have an answer for everything unfortunately their answers are not grounded in reality they're grounded in the narrative that was be to become the calling card of the west memphis three now, berlinger and sonofsky were also able to get metallica to come on board to allow their music to be used in the film people point to that as evidence that see even the you know the biggest metal band in the world at that time believed these boys were not guilty no the biggest metal band in the world saw an opportunity to have their music used and to get money for the use of that music the guys in metallica are businessmen and that is exactly what this is a case of businessmen being businessmen and seeing an opportunity to get to their music before a larger audience who might not already be interested in what they're selling. So you have these individuals who aren't from the area, they don't know the case that was presented against these three individuals becoming involved, and they start setting up legal defense funds for the West Memphis Three, in order to ensure that they have a much better chance of having their appeals heard and the case over against them overturned. This is not a cheap prospect 
In fact, it takes millions of dollars to do such a thing. While all of this is going on, stories started coming out concerning the condemned, particularly Damien Eccles, with one of the stories that is often forgotten being that he was raped while on death row by another prisoner who was also on death row. And these further grew to the point that Damien began to declare that he was never into witchcraft or the occult or magic and had instead turned towards Buddhism and that he was dying in prison which are aspects of the case that the supporters were touting as, you know, this is proof of their innocence, while those who were in the other camp looked at it as, good, the man's a child murderer, he deserves to die in prison. The supporters really rallied the troops in an attempt to get this you know, perceived injustice taken care of. Damien started telling stories about how he was being harassed by the hacks in the prison, and there were constant shakedowns of his cell, and the guards were taking his writings and pretty much everything else that he could do while inside of his prison cell. Really, he was a master showman in this regard, as there is very little evidence to support the idea that Eccles was targeted more so than other prisoners for this type of behavior by the guards and by prison officials. However, that isn't to say that none of these things happened, because as the years roll on and the three convicted men begin to get more support, Supporters, they also are getting more attention from various forms of media, which anyone who has had dealings with the criminal justice system knows prison officials do not like this type of attention aimed at their facilities that they work at and or run. And they do take these things out on the prisoners. I don't care what anybody says. There is documented evidence in thousands of other cases where guards and prison officials decide that this person is causing too much of a problem for them. They need to be put in their place, and they go out of their way to ensure that this type of thing happens. That can be anything from you know, unnecessary cell shakedowns to confiscation of items to removal of privileges such as the ability to buy things in the prison store, even going so far as to put the individuals in solitary confinement under the guise of they violated a prison rule. These things do happen, however, in the case of Damien Eccles, at least from everything that I have seen, there is no documented evidence to suggest that any of this happened. He was simply another individual on death row. So the supporters started out with the whole idea that the police got the wrong guys and that, you know, Eccles and co. were targeted. They started looking at different suspects, one of whom was very briefly L.G. Hollinsworth, before they moved on to the idea that Mr. Bojangles was responsible. If you remember Mr. Bojangles when we talked about 
The suspect, Mr. Bojangles, was a disoriented black man with a cast on his arm who was bleeding who showed up on the night of the murders at a local fast food restaurant and left the woman's bathroom covered in feces and blood. They honed in on this individual who has never been identified and picked apart the fact that the police didn't really do a very thorough job while investigating this complaint by the restaurant. I can understand why they zeroed in on this one as the police did really a piss poor job of investigating it. Now there are some individuals who state that you know this type of thing was fairly common in West Memphis and that the police did not need to investigate it any further than they did. My contention is that you have somebody bleeding inside of a bathroom and then vanishing you would think they want to go in and check this out as thoroughly as possible, possibly even taking blood samples. However, that was not the case here. So I understand how easily the supporters were able to hone in on this. The defense started calling for evidentiary hearings and trying to get the trials thrown out on various grounds, which... I'm not arguing against that because that is the job of any good defense team when you're representing individuals who have been condemned. They also started pointing to alternative suspects, something that you have heard me discuss at various points during this case. The individuals, the two young men who fled to California around the time of the murders were a set of suspects that they honed in on, stating that they were never thoroughly investigated and that individuals said that they were involved. They also honed in on the fact that one of these young men failed a polygraph test before turning their attention to John Mark Byers. And we have discussed John Mark Byers during the course of this series, so we're not going to go into a whole great uh, amount of detail, John Mark Byers had problems, whether it was from drugs or alcohol or mental illness, you can take your pick. So the supporters camp focuses in on him and on the fact that he was known to have quote-unquote whooped Christopher Byers on numerous occasions, one of which was the day that he went missing where Byers admitted to having used a belt on the boy for not going and doing the things that he was supposed to have done, namely cleaning out the carport and taking off from the house despite the fact that he was pretty much told not to. They also focused in on the fact that Byers had given one of the individuals involved with the first Paradise Lost film a pocket knife that was found to contain blood. Now, good on the individuals for the film, they did turn this piece of evidence over to the prosecution during the course of the trial. You know, they were doing their best to keep that bit of conflict of interest away from them. And there was an evidentiary hearing concerning this knife during the trials, where it was decided that it was not the type of knife believed to have been used, and it was not a big enough piece of evidence to cause a mistrial or anything of that nature. Well, during the various appeals, this knife was brought up again, and the supporters and filmmakers turned their attention to 
John Mark Byers, which led to the second Paradise Lost film. And when this film came out, this was when I, who had been an ardent supporter of the West Memphis Three, began to question things. And the reason I began to question things concerning them was they were, in this film, they show Byers as a complete madman. And they cast a lot of aspersions on him, even going so far as to have his ex-wife state that she believed he was probably involved in it. I talked about it in other episodes. There's the very famous scene in this film where Byers is in the woods. He's obviously under the influence of something, you know, making a bonfire and screaming and howling like a loon. It was very obvious that this was staged. And it did come out later, in fact, that you know, buyers had been given money, possibly substances, by the filmmakers prior to the recording of this scene, so that buyers came up looking absolutely terrible. And as a result, a lot of people started honing in on him. Also, it's discussed that, you know, the, the wounds to the boys may have been caused by bite marks, and they honed in on the fact that buyers had had all of his teeth removed and had dentures by the time of the second film. Remember what I said, Byers had problems, and one of those problems involved drugs, and if you've encountered anybody who's had an addiction issue, oftentimes they do have problems with their teeth, and this leads them to have their teeth removed, which was the case with Byers. There was no evidence that there were bite marks from a human body on any of these boys, and I will point out that since the release of the second film and subsequent developments in DNA analysis and other forms of crime scene investigation, bite mark forensics has pretty much been discounted as a reliable form of forensic evidence. What does that mean? That means that were Ted Bundy to ha have been active today and put on trial, the bite mark evidence against him in the Chi Omega murders would not have been admissible in court. Some of you are scratching your heads wondering what I'm talking about. A big part of the evidence presented against Ted Bundy in his Florida trials were bite marks left on the body of one of the victims at the Chi Omega house, which is where Bundy went in and bludgeoned numerous young girls to death in the middle of the night. This was used against Bundy compared against his teeth as evidence that he had committed these crimes. With the way things stand now, bite mark evidence is inadmissible because it has become known to be fallible. It's basically in the same category as polygraph examinations. It's a useful tool for investigators to you know, push forward with their investigation, but when it comes to actually being in court, it is not reliable or indicative enough of a crime having com been committed by an individual for it to be presented to the court and to the jury.
So Byers goes and has another polygraph examination, which he passes. And during the course of all this, he becomes an ardent supporter of the West Memphis Three. And this is only my opinion that I'm stating here. I honestly believe that Byers did this in order to try and get the heat off of himself. Which is a fairly good tactic if you've got thousands of people staring at you, video cameras in your face, and individuals telling the nation that you're the one responsible for this particular crime. Also around this point is when Eccles' first book came out. And it was a mishmash of thoughts. I, I read the book, although I couldn't tell you the contents at this point, as it has literally been decades since I read it. But reading this book and reading in Eccles' own words that he was never into the occult or any of those things, for me, coupled with the second film, that is what made me scratch my head and say, something's not right with this case because he's contradicting every single thing that he stated in the films. And that is when I decided to start investigating this case on my own, and I found the mysite.callahan.com, which is really a record of all of the court records and investigation notes and photographs, as well as witness statements and testimony from the individuals involved in this case. And it was a long, arduous process of going through all of this information, as well as subsequent bits of information that were not contained on that site, such as Damien Eccles' full trial testimony that led me to believe that Eccles and Miss Kelly and Baldwin were in fact guilty. And that's what I urge individuals to do with any case that they're looking at, is to do your own research. I try and present things as thoroughly as possible. However, I admittedly am biased in certain cases, such as the West Memphis Three, due to my own research. Which is why, and I discussed this in the last episode, I let you know when I'm talking opinion versus fact. So all of this is going on with the West Memphis Three. They're casting around for different suspects. And after John Mark Byers, they turn their attention to Terry Hobbs. And I'm going to state this right here. I am friends with Terry Hobbs in the real world. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm best friends with him. We know each other through being online. I've spoken to him a number of times. I have other friends, such as my friend Ed Opperman, the private investigator, who knows Terry much better than I do. And I have never seen nor encountered anything concerning Terry Hobbs that leads me to believe that he is responsible for these murders. However, the reason that the West Memphis Three supporters jumped on Terry Hobbs was the fact that he really didn't give a verifiable timeline for the night in question 
May 5th, 1993. In fact, it wasn't until I believe 2007 that he gave an official accounting before the police of his movements that night, and his friend David Jacoby also gave an account during this time period. There's also the fact that Terry Hobbs had shot and killed his brother-in-law in the years following these murders after some kind of an altercation involving the brother-in-law and alcohol. And if I'm not mistaken, it was found that was found not guilty. Basically, it was that he had, was a self-defense, although I could be mistaken on that. I'm not dive, doing a deep dive into Terry Hobbs's criminal history. Regardless of that, Hobbs gave an accounting to the police, as did David Jacoby. You have to understand that they, you know, that night that the boys went missing, as we've discussed, it was just another day to both of them as it was to everyone involved in this, and they're not going to have perfect clarity and total recall. If you talk to investigators, they will tell you the best time to get any kind of reliable information from individuals, whether they be suspects or not, is immediately after something occurs. Meaning that if the police wanted to get the best, most accurate timeline of events from Terry Hobbs, the period of time in which that, that should have been done would have been the first 24 to 48 hours after the boys went missing and their bodies were discovered. Well, the defense started putting out these theories about Hobbs concerning the murder of the boys, one of which was that he did it to teach Pam Hobbs a lesson Another is that he had been caught having a gay orgy in the woods by the three boys, and as a consequence, the three boys were murdered. There's no evidence to support any of these accusations, nor is there any evidence to support the idea that Terry Hobbs hid the bodies inside of a manhole cover and came back and moved them later, which is one of the theories that has been touted about concerning Terry Hobbs' involvement of these murders. That the murders were committed, they hid the bodies inside of a manhole, and that later, while everybody was out searching, he came back either by himself or with other Confederates and moved the bodies to the location that they were discovered. Okay, there is no evidence that that happened, nor is it even remotely plausible that it had happened. If he was going to go to the lengths of stuffing the boys' bodies inside of a manhole, if he didn't want them to be found, it would have been very easy to just leave the bodies there because no one was going to find them inside of a manhole because the police were not going to start pulling manholes up in an effort to try and locate three missing boys. So the idea that he did this and then moved the bodies into an area where it was very probable that they were going to be discovered is laughably bad. Really, the only piece of evidence against Terry Hobbs in this particular scenario is the fact that a hair which could have come from Terry Hobbs was found embedded in one of the knots used to tie one of the boys.
Okay, so a hair was found. If you know anything about forensic, you understand that there's a thing called transfer, meaning things transfer from one person to another, from some one surface to another. The fact that Terry Hobbs was the stepfather of Stevie Branch and that all of three of these boys were constantly in and out of the Hobbs household in the weeks and months leading up to the disappearance and murder of these boys makes it very plausible that a hair from one of the parents would have been found on one of these victims. Had they not been submerged in water, it is very probable and likely that hairs and other things from any one of the households would have been found on one or all three of the victims. That is how intertwined these three boys' lives were with each other, that it is believable that they would have picked up hairs and fibers from one another's homes. Well, Terry Hobbs ends up getting in a lawsuit with the one of the Dixie chicks over statements that she made about him. Unfortunately, Terry did not win this lawsuit. People point to the fact that Terry was kind of combative on the stand during this lawsuit as further evidence of his guilt. I can't state that, you know, I would not have been in a combative mode either if someone with massive amounts of money, no evidence to back up their claims, and a worldwide platform was convicting me of having committed murder, particularly murder of three young boys. All of this is going on. Other members of Hollywood start getting involved in the West Memphis Three's cause, particularly Johnny Depp, who is said to have been a good friend of Damien Eccles, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, as well as Peter Jackson from Lord of the Rings fame. Because of this, millions upon millions of dollars are being poured into the coffers of the West Memphis Three's support fund. The condemned are doing interviews with basically anybody who will put forward the story that they're wanting to have out there. And this is where they really tried to solidify the idea that they had alibis in the case was during this whole arduous 18-year process of them being incarcerated and their supporters trying to get them out. We discussed it all throughout this series. Baldwin never gave any form of an alibi. And that's not conjecture on my part. That is coming straight from the police as well as individuals who testified during the trial and who spoke after the fact, Baldwin never offered a alibi. His defense was simply, I'm not guilty by reason of silence. Whereas Damien Eccles offered numerous alibis and his alibis were shot down in court, he has continued to cling to one of these alibis despite the fact that they have never been verified 
and that some of the individuals who were involved in the supposed phone call alibi have stuck to their story of, hey, what he's saying never happened, whereas others have kind of, oh, maybe, you know, he was right and we did talk earlier. The majority of the individuals involved in this particular alibi have stuck to their stories that what he's saying is not true. Jesse Miss Kelly's story has remained that he was out wrestling despite the fact that in open court this was disproven not to have happened. And subsequent investigations of the idea that he went wrestling in Dyers, Arkansas have proven that it did not take place on the night in question. This is not just from the individual who owned the wrestling ring, it's also from the police and fire departments in Dyers who hosted the wrestling events, who had documented evidence showing that a wrestling event had not taken place in the area in years. So all this is going on. Eccles is, again, supposedly dying in prison despite evidence to the contrary that he was actually thriving in prison. He puts out another book, and I have read this book, and in this book it's really this whole train of thought about, you know, Buddhism, and, you know, he can transfer his body out of his cell uh, to other places, and that he's, you know, becoming very powerful because of this, while at the same point he's talking about how prison is killing him, and it's during this period of time that a woman by the name of Lori Davis comes into his life. Supposedly, she was an architect from New York City, and the two of them end up falling in love and getting married while they're behind bars. With her moving down to air the area to be closer to Damien. This type of thing happens with condemned prisoners all the time. Individuals that are on death row, they get their groupies, such as Richard Ramirez did, and end up marrying one of them. Well, the defense continues on trying to get evidentiary hearings and test DNA and have the cases thrown out. Anything that they can do in order to try and get the boys released from prison. And this is a bone of contention that is often overlooked by supporters. The defense requested to have DNA samples tested in an effort to try and get the boys exonerated. Okay, good, great, that is what you want your defense team to do. However, they started after getting this request and having it granted, claiming that they had DNA evidence now that would exonerate the three young men. And it was around about this time that the third Paradise Lost film came out. And really, the film revolves around all of these different hearings, individuals going to West Memphis to protest the boys' innocence, harassing family members who believe the boys are guilty, all of these kind of things that are seen as being, you know, just and righteous in their quest to have these three young men exonerated for crimes which they do not feel that they were guilty of. 
here's the bone of contention. They claim to have this evidence that's going to exonerate the three young men. What happened to it? If you have this evidence, whether the boys are behind bars or they're not behind bars, it would behoove your clients who are protesting their innocence to show this evidence to the court, if not the world, to prove that they are in fact innocent. That did not happen. What ends up happening is they're going to have an evidentiary hearing, and instead the defense team is able to work it so that their clients are going to take an Alford plea. What is an Alford plea? An Alford plea is a guilty plea. I'm stating that up front for any of the supporters who might be listening to this thinking, no, the boys were found not guilty, that's why they were released from prison. No. An Alford plea is a guilty plea. The only difference between an Alford plea and a guilty plea is that the Alford plea allows the individual who is pleading guilty the right to ascertain their innocence after the fact. And the reason that Alford pleas are not used more often in court is because when you do the Alford plea, you plead guilty when it comes time to sentencing and to parole it looks very bad in the eyes of the court and those who are deciding on these things that this individual pled guilty to the crime but is still protesting their innocence it shows a lack of remorse a lack of growth as an individual and can come back to haunt the person who has put in and accepted this particular plea. And all of this happened while the filming of Paradise Lost Part 3 was taking place. In fact, the film had been completed when the filmmakers got wind of the fact that the three killers were in fact going to take this Alfred plea. Now this idea I have read that it was put forward by Eccles Camp in an effort to try and get him off of death row and back out on the streets. Baldwin refused to accept this at first. And I've talked about this in other episodes. I commend him on that fact because he was protesting his innocence so adamantly he did not want to publicly say he did these things his mindset was, look, I'm either going to be found completely innocent of these things or I'm guilty. There was no gray area in the matter. It was very black and white. And a lot of pressure was put on Jason Baldwin by the Eccles camp and the supporters camp of Damien's going to be executed if you do not take this plea. And eventually, Jason Baldwin agreed to take this plea because of the amount of pressure put upon him. So they take this plea, and basically, like I said, it's that they're pleading guilty, but they reserve the right to 
continue to state that they are innocent. From the state's standpoint, what an Alfred plea means is that they agreed the individuals have the right to state that they are innocent, but the state still maintains that the individuals are guilty and that if this went to trial, they would be found guilty in a court of law. So when you see things online, such as if you Google the West Memphis 3 case and it states that the case is still unresolved, that is a fallacy, a fantasy put forth by the individuals who support the West Memphis 3. As far as the state of Arkansas is concerned, the individuals who committed the crimes were found guilty of them and served out their sentences. The case is not unsolved. It's not sitting in a cold case file somewhere because by the killer's own admissions, the case was solved correctly the first time and they took this plea in order to get out of prison. So that's how the West Memphis Three get out of prison. It's because they take this Alfred plea and they are put on probation for 10 years with the modifier being that if any of you get into trouble during this 10-year period, you're going back to prison. Well, Jason Baldwin and Damian Eccles immediately leave the area. Well, Jesse Miss Kelly remains, and there are some who question why the condemned were allowed to take the Alford plea, and it basically boils down to this. The West Memphis Three had become a major thorn in the side of the justice system in Arkansas. It had cost the taxpayers thousands, if not millions of dollars, and the Attorney General and the District Attorney's Office wanted to get this particular problem out of their hair, and they agreed to this because they believed at the time that it would allow them to move forward without having to deal with these individuals. It wasn't because individuals within the you know, prosecutor's office believed that the boys were actually innocent, which is one story that has been put out there. It was because they were becoming a headache, and there were individuals who were involved from the prosecutor's side who were attempting to advance their political careers at that time, and this was an albatross around their neck. It's the only reason that they agreed to get taken Alfred plea from the West Memphis Three after they had already been convicted and sentenced in this case. The idea that the judge allowed this Alfred plea to take place because they realized that there had been a miscarriage of justice and that the, the new DNA evidence would exonerate the three is in and of itself a fallacy that has been perpetrated by the West Memphis Three as well as the supporters in their camp because the only DNA evidence that was known of at this time in 2010-2011 was this single hair, which was not enough to exonerate the three men. Yes, the new trial judge did 
allow for the testing of new evidence and was willing to hold an evidentiary hearing in order to look at this evidence to decide whether or not it should proceed to a new trial. However, it's telling that the defense believed so little in this DNA evidence and that it would have a change in the outcome of this trial that they instead sought the Alford plea in an attempt to get the three convicted killers released from prison. So what happens after this? Well, Jesse Miss Kelly goes back to living in West Memphis. Damien Eccles like I said, flees the state with Lori Davis. First, they live in New York City in an apartment owned by Peter Jackson, and they're basically living it up the high life, hobnobbing with celebrities. There are pictures out there of Eccles and Johnny Depp getting matching tattoos. Jason Baldwin takes off to the West Coast, the Oregon area, where he is living with friends. There are stories that he's pursuing, you know, getting a degree. He ends up starting a Kickstarter campaign to put out a memoir. And I forget how much exactly it was that he got for this memoir, but it was a substantial amount of money. And unfortunately... The individuals who backed this particular campaign never saw anything from this book, as Baldwin got the money and never proceeded forward with the offered product. And to the best of my knowledge, none of the individuals who put up the money through this Kickstarter ever received an explanation or a refund for their money. Baldwin ends up eventually settling in Texas, where he becomes involved in a nonprofit whose stated goal is to help exonerate individuals who have been wrongly convicted. Eccles flip flops on his whole I was never involved in the occult and starts doing artwork and releasing books on high magic, which he takes direct influence from Aleister Crowley for these books. And if you'll recall during his trial, he stated he really had no information on Crowley other than he had come across his name. He didn't know that much about him, which was shown to be a lie. He also, when he was in prison, remember, he stated that he had never been involved in any form of magic and was now a Buddhist. Well, this was shown to be a lie. And in fact, again, mentioning my friend Ed Opperman, he had the individual who owned the storage unit where all of Damien Eccles and Lori Davis's personal effects had been stored. When they left Arkansas, they left behind everything. And this individual, obviously, He's not getting paid for it. He has the right to open it up. And what does he find? Thousands of occult books. And the reason I mentioned Ed Opperman is he had the guy on his show. The guy at the time was trying to sell the two lots of books that were in there, each of which had numerous annotations inside of it in Damien Eccles' own handwriting. 
There were also love letters and various kinds of correspondence from Damien Eccles in which he states that he is the devil and that he can prove this to someone if they are willing to come and meet with him. So again, Eccles is showing himself to be a liar because to the general public he's stating, hey, I'm not into this stuff, I never was into this stuff. And in private correspondence and in the books that he is known to have owned, he's stating the exact opposite. Not only that, Eccles also released at least two books on the practice of high magic, one of which I read and I found to be absolutely terrible, which led to Eccles' supporters when I did the original series on this case to spam my own works with one-star reviews that were not based in reality. They were simply snide comments such as, this individual's an idiot, um, subpar reading material, despite the fact that you know, realize that it's very easy to see whether or not someone has purchased or read your books. Now, you would think that the West Memphis Three would, you know, having protested their innocence the entire time they were incarcerated, now that they're out, they would really want to try and clear their name. Well, none of that happened, despite promises from them that they would continue to seek justice. If you'll recall, I stated that they were on probation for 10 years. Well, it was only after the 10 years had expired that Damien Eccles, whose celebrity status had severely begun to flag after moving to Harlem, New York with Lori Davis, began piping up again, demanding access to to the case files and all evidence in relation to the West Memphis Three case. The state of Arkansas refuted this, stating that, no, you were found guilty as far as we're concerned. The case is closed. You do not have the right to have access to this. Well, then the Eccles camp tried to claim that they had destroyed this evidence and or otherwise lost it, and this got all of the idiots on Twitter and in a furor and an uproar because how could they do this when the case isn't solved? As far as the state of Arkansas is concerned, the case has been solved for over 30 years. There is no reason for them to maintain case files and evidence as the case is solved. Be that as it may, the Supreme Court ruled that Eccles did in fact have a, the right to seek DNA testing on this evidence, and as of the recording of this show, that testing has not proceeded. What did happen, however, is Eccles was able to get a round of media appearances on various talk shows and radio programs where he was able to push his magic books as well as a organization that he had started in order to teach people high magic, basically doing the same thing that Aleister Crowley had done during his lifetime. But that's not all that has happened. 
Jesse Miss Kelly has been arrested numerous times since his release from prison. Each arrest has been a parole violation, but again, because the state of Arkansas does not want to deal with their supporters in any way, shape, or form, he was allowed to slide on each one of these charges, and it was not held again against him. Jason Baldwin, on the other hand, as I stated, he settled in Texas. He's now working for a nonprofit that, to the best of my knowledge and from all that I have seen, have really not worked on any cases that involve the exoneration of individuals wrongly convicted. What has happened, however, is that Jason Baldwin has gone public through his Twitter page and stated that he and Damien Eccles are no longer friends and no longer have contact. And lastly, we're going to focus on two small pieces concerning Damien Eccles. If you search for him online, everything says that he was wrongly convicted and that any article about him concerns his wrongful conviction and the fact that he isn't innocent. Well, the reality is Damien Eccles has a very, very powerful PR firm behind him. And when he goes and interview these companies, be it People Magazine or The Guardian or any other major news source that wants to have an interview with him, they are told what they are allowed to ask him, what they are not allowed to ask him. Basically, they're given a list of guidelines of what's okay to discuss and what stance that the individual doing the, any particular article or televised interview needs to take in order to have access to Damius. Now, this isn't a guess on my part. This is coming from individuals I know within the news and entertainment industry who have interviewed Damien Eccles or attempted to interview Damien Eccles, and they have told me this as well. Some of them have actually shown me documentation of the things that they had to agree to in order to do these interviews with Damien. In conjunction with that, they have also been able to have Google search results come up with the information that they want. That's not very hard to do. All you have to do is put forth the money to have a thing changed to read what you want or to have search results come up at the top in their aggregated analytics and you can have these things done. That's why, you know, doing a internet search on a particular case is not always the best course of action to go because they're going to give you the most popular or what an individual is having pushed as the truth during a given period of time. Now the last piece that we are going to cover concerns Bob Ruff. Some of you are aware of him, some of you are not. Okay, Bob Ruff is a former arson investigator, and I'm going to bury his ass right here, so sorry. 
arson investigation is and has been considered for decades to be a pseudoscience, meaning it is not reliable because every fire is not the same. And I'm not just stating that. There are experts in forensics and other forms of science who have gone on the record to state this since the beginning of the use of fire scene investigations. The reason being that for decades, and even still in many places, there is no set criteria for an investigator to determine whether or not a fire was quote-unquote naturally occurring or had been deliberately set. A lot of the views that he, we as a society hold on arson investigations, in fact, come from Hollywood which is not known to stick to the facts in these types of situations and makes things up in order to make a story better and more palatable for the consuming public. Bob Ruff started a podcast, and during this course of this podcaster, he's putting himself out there as this, you know, renowned fire investigator, he covers the West Memphis Three and his expertise at investigating that they're not guilty. Well, he ends up getting a show with Oxygen. And the show with Oxygen was laughably bad as he claimed that he was going to get to the truth and the heart of the matter and was going to reveal the new killer. Well, first off, Jesse Miss Kelly wanted nothing to do with this fucktard. Uh, would not cooperate with him. Then Bob Roth is going to the state of Arkansas demanding access to, have, you know, investigate this case and to retry the DNA. And, you know, the fact that they wouldn't allow him to do this is proof that there's a cover-up. It made for good television. The reality of the fact is this. Bob Ruff is not a licensed investigator. He has not been retained by the defense in any way, shape, or form, and in fact has not been tied to this case. Meaning, he has no legal grounds, no legal standing or basis to be involved and to have access to any of the case files or to DNA evidence. He cannot, and the state of Arkansas does not have to grant him access to these things. And if I'm not mistaken, they legally cannot grant him access to the aforementioned information. Ruff tried to play this off as proof that there was a cover-up. No, they were following the law. You're just some freaking jackass who came out of nowhere and was able to get a freaking television deal out of it so that you could turn around and freaking make a lot of money despite the fact that you do not legally have a right to get any of this information and you did not prove anything in your show. Not only that, you the show claimed that there was going to be new evidence, yada, yada, yada. There was nothing new said in the show. It was all the same old tired tropes and stories that had been being 
pitched by the West Memphis Three supporters camp for the last 30 years. But people lapped all of this up, including some fairly big names that I know within the true crime community who believe that he did an excellent job on this instead of taking the objective look of what he actually did, which was just another West Memphis Three fluff piece. There is no new evidence presented in the case, nor is there any evidence presented that shows that these individuals were, you know, not guilty and gives us definitively who the actual killer was. One thing that did happen during this is Bob Ruff harassed the holy living shit out of Terry Hobbs to the point of that when Hobbs did finally agree to give an interview with Ruff, he was pretty pissed off over the fact, and this is very apparent on camera, because Hobbs has gone on with his life and is trying to enjoy it to the best of his, his ability, and having an individual like Bob Ruff come over and harass him and make baseless accusations against him repeatedly over and over and over and over again got to the point where Terry was like, well, you know, fuck this guy. And Ruff and his supporters, as well as West Memphis Three were supporters, have pointed to this as proof that Terry Hobbs was guilty. My opinion, based on all the evidence I've seen and the evidence that I've attempted to present in the course of this series, is that Terry Hobbs was not guilty. His wife or his ex-wife has come forward and said that she thinks that Terry was involved in it. Well, when she, in fact, made those statements, the two of them were going through a very messy divorce. So you have to take that account into account when looking at her statements. The West Memphis Three were found guilty in 1994. And as of this recording, based upon all of the evidence that was presented in the court and all of the witness statements that were presented in court, they remain guilty. There is no evidence to suggest a cover-up or that it was a witch hunt looking for Satanists or targeting three young boys who just happened to be a little bit too different for their puritanical community. West Memphis is not puritanical. There was no witch hunt. The three young men who were convicted of this crime looked no different from many others who lived in that area and in fact lived in similar areas all across the country during the period of time that these murders were committed. They were convicted on their own statements, on witness testimony, as well as on circumstantial evidence that was found during the commission of the investigation into the murders of these three young boys. Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers. The idea that all of the families of these three young victims have since come to see the convicted killers as in fact being innocent and not responsible for these crimes is in and of itself another fallacy. As I know from having spoken to these individuals that Todd Moore, his wife, Terry Hobbs, and numerous other individuals related to these three young victims still contend that the state of Arkansas, in their initial investigation, trial, and conviction, 
got the three individuals who were responsible for the murder of their loved ones. I am going to call it here at this point. For those of you who are requesting that I do a deep dive on this case, again, I hope that this has sated your curiosity on this particular case. And until next time, The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasting. Stay morbid. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent? If you're worried about recruiting and retention, consider Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices so you can spend more time growing your business and less time on HR. Visit Insperity.com and download their free ebook on how to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your success. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.